Welcome, everybody. Uh, like David said, my name is Evan, and my wife Sandy and I have the honor of leading this church. And we are beginning a new series today, right there, God Breathed, uh, relearning how to read and trust the Bible. Uh, so the next eight or so weeks, you're going to need your Bible. Like right now, you'll need your Bible. Raise your hand if you don't have one. We'll get you one, and we'll pass you out a physical Bible. Uh, or you can use your phone, get on the Uversion app, whatever you have, or Logos for the nerds out there. Uh, you, get, you, got, you got your Bible app. Uh, so, um, if, yeah, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We'll get you one. Before we, before we read the text, I'm intentionally setting the table a little bit. So uh, I want to remind you we have a Bible reading pathway for our church this year called Bread. We're reading the New Testament in a year, in 2023. If you have the journal, that's awesome. Uh, if you've sort of fallen off the reading path, the bread wagon, uh, then that's totally fine. This is a perfect time to get back on the train um, because starting this week, we're immersing ourselves in real questions a lot of us have, like what is the Bible? What isn't it? Do we bring any presumptions to what the Bible is that just kind of mess us up from the start? How does the Bible work? How do Christians and why do we submit to this thing? So a major goal for this series is not just to hear about the Bible, but to learn the Bible by actually reading it in community. Why? Because by humbly coming to the scriptures together in Holy Spirit-led community, Jesus' followers increase our trust in God's words above our own words. So by the Spirit through community, we trust God's words over even our own. And this flows from our greater vision this year, which is all about hearing God's voice and having God's thoughts. So as Christ followers, we're invited to have the mind of Christ through the Spirit and through the Scriptures. So we're going to today crack open the lid of a charged conversation. And it's kind of controversial, uh, but it's really important. It's all about this, this library of books. You know, the Bible is not just a book. It is a library of ancient documents, and how do we read it? There's different genres in it, and we're in post-Christian America, and the Bible's like a foreign country for us. So, so today's teaching is gonna set the table. It's an intro, not just to the series, but hopefully to the next several years. We just keep this intro in mind when we come to the Bible. And also, there's probably many of you here who are very new to the Bible and church, and maybe you're skeptical of the scriptures. You might be cool with Jesus, like, but the Bible, you're not so sure, and I 100% understand that. Listen, my hope is that this place would be a church where you can have questions about the Bible, like all questions are welcome, and with some trite answer is not necessary, but real dialogue is, is welcome. Your honest questions are welcome here, honest doubts are welcome here, even encouraged for spiritual growth. My uh, seminary professor used to say, churches need an atmosphere where questions about truthfulness are encouraged and questions of the Bible are taken seriously, believing that Christianity thrives under honest investigation. So we want to be that place, 100%. So one thing on this, you guys, our church staff, the pastors here, we're always ready to help guide you through questions that you might have about the Bible or anything else. We, love, we find it best to dialogue in person in community groups. So the discussion guides flowing out of these teachings are going to be very oriented towards like honest discussion about the Bible. Um, but even the pastors, and me included, are available to help you wrestle through the questions, even through email. 
uh, if you can. But obviously, if we get like 78 email questions with like deep, deep issues, like chances are it'll be a while before you get a response, and it probably won't even be the answer you deserve. Um, when we first started Park Hills, someone emailed us the question, what is Park Hills theology? Just like super broad. And uh, not, so, so uh, we directed them. We learned to create a bunch of papers, and you can see them on the website. Uh, we have resources. Still, at the end of the day, wrestling through your questions in community, in person, is always best. So finally, uh, before we jump in, one disclaimer. Today, I will ask some questions around the Bible that I will intentionally not answer. So if, if you feel unsettled at any point in this talk, that's, that's a good thing. It's okay. Because there's a lot of tension in the Scriptures. There's a lot of answers we don't find in the Scriptures. And so let that tension unsettle you today and keep reading. And keep opening your heart and mind to Jesus through the Bible as we journey together. Remember, this is an intro teaching. It's supposed to feel open-ended because real life is open-ended, designed to point us forward to Jesus. So which brings us to our teaching. So our text that we're going to read, it's one of those cornerstone moments where Jesus gives his take on the Bible. Did you know Jesus read the Bible? The scriptures, his scriptures, he called them the law and the prophets. What we have in our Bible as the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. So if you can, turn to Matthew 5, verse 17 through, 17 through 20, and it won't be on the screen because, yes, you're going to have a Bible with you, whether it's a phone or a paper. So we're going to read this. And if we could stand at this moment just to kind of get the blood flowing, hit the reset. This is Jesus on the Scriptures. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. We just invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds to his word. Holy Spirit, would you come as we're seated in our, in our seats receiving the teaching of Jesus, uh, I pray that any words that are just Evan would fall to the floor and the words that are yours would penetrate every soul and bring fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be seated. All right, so where to start? I just want to point out, we have a problem with the Bible. So just in our house, Sandy and I love teaching our kids about Jesus and talking about Jesus and, and even showing them Bibles they might like to read from a young age. Maybe it's a comic book Bible. That's, River loves the comic book Bible right now. He's eight years old. For the older kids, Hendrik, Jaden, and, and Gavin, two of them are adults already. So we have deep theology conversations around dinner that last sometimes well 
after dinner. Um, but, but with the little kids, uh, Rivers got his like comic book Bible. And then Harper, I remember talking about a Bible story with her. And I asked her, so Harper, she's 10. I'm like, do you have any questions about the Bible? Any thoughts? And then she, she just kind of backed up. And she, I, I saw just her mind working. And then she waved her hand in a circle. And she's like, you know all this? I'm like, all what? She's like, just all this. How do we know it's real? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good question. Any questions about, like, what we just talked about? And, and she's like, yeah, I mean all that. All the Bible stuff and all the church stuff. How do we know it wasn't all invented by the government, she said. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I like her a lot. I wasn't expecting that, but I love it. Harper has a problem with the Bible, right? She's asking the right questions. There's something unsolved. And for many of you, that's the case. Harper's wondering, how do I read this thing? How do I receive it in the first place? And maybe you're like, how should I be thinking? Isn't it old? It's like super old. And hasn't it changed a lot since then? Things change, especially thousands of years old things. And my guess is for some of us, there's even a deeper problem. Some of us maybe don't totally like the Bible. If I were to take you out to coffee and ask you, okay, safe space, be honest, I know I'm a pastor, uh, but you can be real. How do you feel about the Bible? Your first response, you might be like, I love it, I read it, God speaks to me. But my guess is if we were to hang out for a while, a lot of you would shoot straight and be like, hmm, you know, I don't really like, I don't know, I don't like it totally. I like that you like it, Evan, because you're like my pastor or whatever, and you read it and study it, you went to seminary. And I like the Sunday, I like that you read the Bible for the Sunday morning talk for the community I'm a part of, but it's not really my thing. Like, it's not the thing I wake up and think about. People have a lot of modern questions about the Bible. Questions that can make us take issue with the text. Like, for starters, it's pretty bloody, right? There's a lot of gore, and it's not great gore. Like, some people can read the book of Joshua and be like, wow, look what happens when you trust God. God just scatters your enemies and brings victory. But some people, and, and maybe, you read, maybe that's you, you read Joshua and you're like, look how God goes before me, takes care of my enemies and brings me into the land or whatever, uh, which is amazing. But some of us read the book of Joshua and we're like, how is this not God approving genocide right now? And how is it that God could command the death of women and children? How is this holy scripture that is over my life? Not to mention the rape and murder and incest that's found in the people of God in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. We have these questions. And then there's the whole conversation around what does it mean? Once we read it, how do we interpret it? I'll explain with a story from our own church. Here at Park Hill, we encourage women and men equally to lead in church and to use their gifts, and to pastor, and to teach, because of how we read the Bible. So uh, in light of this, in our first few months as a church, we had this humble group of folks come to us in the beginning, like the first four months of Park Hill. Uh, and, they came, and their question was, why would you have a woman teach? It says in 1 Timothy that a woman should not be allowed to teach. And it actually does say that. Here's Paul. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. It's very quiet in here right now. <laughs> that feels hard to read. I admit, that's a, hard, that's a hard text. 
But the question is, what do you take that to mean? Everyone can read it. The question is, what do you take it to mean? Does that mean do not teach on Sunday during a sermon with a pulpit and a, and a group? Uh, and that's typically what we take it to mean in America, but it doesn't say that. It just says to teach, and there's no qualifier. It just says to teach. So the question is this, have you ever learned anything or been taught anything by a woman? And it doesn't say that women are only allowed to teach other women. It just says women can't teach, period. But no one takes it to mean just that. So what do you take it to mean? And who is it up to to decide what that means, you see? Or, or take another example. Paul commands multiple times in his letters to greet each other with a holy kiss. And we're all like, well, that's not what it means. It means greet each other with a holy side hug. That's what it means. And I would say, why do you change, why do you change the word? Why do you interpret it that way? And you should say, well, it's cultural. The kiss doesn't mean the same thing anymore, not in America. So we have an American interpretation. Okay, well, what about don't murder? Is that cultural? Well, you shall not murder. That's obvious. For sure, but most Christians would say, well, you shall not murder unless it's killing in self-defense or defending something you love, and then it's not murder anymore. It's just killing. But then I would say something like, well, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Then you would say something like, well, Jesus said, buy a sword. And then I would say, well, later on, Jesus said, put away that sword because that's not how the kingdom of God comes into the world. And then you might say, okay, but at the end of the Bible, isn't Jesus sitting on a white horse wearing a robe dipped in blood and carrying a sword? And then I would say, well, the blood is his own blood and the sword isn't in his hand. It's part of his mouth and it's a symbol. And then you would say, why can you say it's a symbol? How do you know when the Bible is being symbolic? And how do you know when the passage is cultural? And how do you know when to obey something? And then I would say, this is our problem with the Bible. Am I right? So, and this is our problem. We should just admit this. We should just breathe easy. This is, this is our problem with the Bible. This is okay right now. The Bible is a hard book to understand a lot of the time. And it does not take a PhD, but it does take skill and humility and intelligence to interpret the Bible wisely. The Bible has been used for great good and some of the greatest evil that our world's ever seen. Mark Twain wrote an essay about the Bible suggesting the Bible's like a drugstore because in the Bible you can get both the poison and the cure, right? Historically, uh, the Bible has been misused as a poison which has started war, sexism, and in our U.S. context, slavery, genocide of Native American people, it's the poison that drove a lot of that. But the Bible's also the cure. It's a cure for war, through people obeying Jesus by giving their lives in nonviolence to war-torn countries and the empowering of women and minorities, the Bible was the explicit motivation of abolitionists to end slavery. So question, if the Bible's so hard, why do we keep putting up with it? Why do we keep sticking with it? Why don't we just move on? Why don't we just keep Jesus and his red letters and keep some encouraging words for the pastor to say on Sunday and sing some songs and be done with this big, old, intimidating book. And, and who wraps a book in leather anyway, right? It's like, this is very weird for us. Uh, why read it? And why read it every day? Here's why. The reason we don't move on from the Bible, the reason we keep reading is because we're followers of Jesus. Jesus was profoundly shaped by the Bible, and so are we. Jesus 
it's safe to say, was obsessed with the Bible. All of it. To put it mildly, his Bible, our Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, Jesus called it, it's something he constantly quoted and taught from, and he probably had it completely memorized because he was considered a rabbi. And he would pray it. Jesus' entire way of seeing the world was shaped by the Scriptures. So because we're disciples of Jesus, it's our goal to have this, the same relationship with the Bible that Jesus had. That's the idea. Followers of Jesus have the same relationship with the Bible Jesus had. And Jesus loved the Scriptures. Look at the text again, Matthew 5:17 in your hand. Matthew 5:17 and 18. Talking about the Bible, Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish it. I haven't come to abolish the law of the prophets. Verse 17 in your Bibles. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You guys, this is a huge window into how Jesus relates to the Bible and how he sees his own life there. He sees his own life there. So notice three things in your text. Number one, to Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches its climax in his own life. Number one, as the Bible Project says, the whole Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. That's right. That's how Jesus saw the whole thing. And see those phrases in verse 17. Don't abolish it. I'm fulfilling it till everything's accomplished. Listen, Jesus did not read the Bible like an encyclopedia of truth. That might be how a lot of modern people think of the Bible, but that's not how Jesus read it. The Bible isn't some scientific textbook that we data mine for definitions and answers to our questions about God and life after death. Like life after death in the appendix, and it goes to the part of the Bible where life after death is perfectly explained. That's not the Bible. Of course, the Bible is completely true. Full of truth all the way, uh, for sure. But Jesus, first and foremost, read this library of ancient literature as a story. The Bible is a story, primarily a long, drawn-out narrative about God and human history, why everything exists, where it's all headed. And in Jesus' mind, the whole thing is this remarkable true story of how everything builds up to himself. So to Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches its climax in him. And then num number two, in, in this text, to Jesus, the Bible is trustworthy, can completely be trusted, totally. Look at verse 18, Matthew 5, 18. Jesus says, truly I tell you, until what disappears? What does it say in your Bibles? Until heaven and earth disappear. In other words, never not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear until, in Jesus, until everything is accomplished. The idea here, every scrap of ink will not pass away. Every letter matters and is there exactly because God wants it to be. Wow. That's about as high a view of a Bible as you could ever have. The Bible's really come under fire in the last hundred years in America. If you kind of know about Christian history in our nation, back to the Scopes Monkey Trial, you can Google that it's another day if you want. But a but hundred years is like 10 minutes in Bible time. 
When Jesus gets hit with a question, way back in Jesus' day, he gets hit with a Bible question, you never see Jesus just railing against the Bible. His beef is always with people's misreadings of it. For Jesus, the problem wasn't the Bible, it was the way people misread it, or didn't believe it, or misinterpreted it, or bring some weird bias to it. For Jesus, the Bible is trustworthy. And then number three, to Jesus, the Bible is also authority. It's, it's his ultimate authority, or it's the channel through which ultimate authority came to him. Check out verse 19, Matthew 5. Jesus doesn't mess around here. He says, whoever sets aside one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that's intense. So whoever treats the authority of the Bible as, oh, that's not a big deal. That person will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, sets aside, is the idea of breaking or ignoring or relaxing your grip on. So if you break the commands of the Bible on purpose, like, hey, that's okay, it's totally, that's old, it's out of step now, it's 2023 now, come on, get your laws off my body or whatever. Or if you ignore it, like, yeah, I know it's in there somewhere, but it's not really my thing to study it. I don't really have the answer, and I don't really want to get it right now. Or if you kind of relax, you relax your grip on the Bible in the sense, like, yeah, I know, but, you know, boys will be boys or whatever. Jesus says, then you will be called least in the kingdom. In Jesus' view, we're to fully come under the authority of the scriptures, just like he did. So before you freak out, (laughs) please note, Jesus was no closed-minded fundy, okay? He was no fundamentalist. Look Look what Jesus does next. If you're worried about that, look what he does in the next verse, Matthew 5, 21. He says, you've heard it said, this one is on the screen. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. He's quoting his Bible, Exodus 20. And then he interprets it. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus interprets it. Again, Matthew 5, 27. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. He quotes the Bible, and then he interprets it. But I say, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, quotes the Bible, but I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, Jesus interprets. Again, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and he interprets, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And last one I'll mention now, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus goes on interpreting, giving the meaning. What's going on here? Jesus is dealing head on with all sorts of popular readings and misreadings, right? Some popular readings and misreadings of the Bible in his world. Stuff on marriage and divorce and sex and stuff on even military violence is in that passage. But here's what we need to see. To Jesus, the Bible is constantly in need of debate and push and pull and dialogue and reading and rereading and rethinking from the bottom up in order to get to the meaning, the heart of the text. Not just yours interpretation by yourself and not mine by myself, but the whole church together in community by the power of the Spirit getting to the heart, 
generation after generation after generation. Have you seen that famous bumper sticker, just to illustrate the counterpoint? You know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you seen that bumper sticker? In my opinion, this would not fly with Jesus. Ironically, that's an unbiblical philosophy about the Bible. When you look at how the people in the Bible viewed and read the Bible, that's not how they talked about the Bible. What is this missing? It's missing, the Bible says it, we interpret it, I believe it, that settles it. You see? I know that would make the bumper sticker less catchy, but, but it would be true. That's the truth. Because anyone who can read English, you can open your NIV Bible, you have it open maybe, in your, in your lap, and you can read. Anyone can read who can read English, that's not the problem. We all agree on what the English words are. The issue isn't what it says, but what it means. That's always the question. What does it mean? And this is what Jesus is doing all through Matthew 5. He's really doing, if you're in Bible college or you're taking a theology class, this is really like freshman level hermeneutics in Bible college. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word that means the art and science of reading a book well, right? One of the first things you learn in Bible hermeneutics is there's three layers to reading the Bible, right? There's the revelation, which is what the text says. That's God's words on the page. And that's reading. And you might have to translate Greek from Hebrew if you don't know it. That's me. I don't know it. So I have to, tra- I have to trust translators for revelation. And then interpretation. What does it mean? And then application. How do I obey God? Always that's the final. How can I honor God fully with my whole life uh, out of this text? And those, those three steps are each important. And, and you can't ignore one. Understand, you can't like, you can't skimp on one of those. And here's what I mean. Have you heard of, I use the word fundamentalist. There's also the word progressive, right? You've heard of fundamentalist Christianity or you've heard progressive Christianity. What, 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 what is that? Well, one helpful way to think about it, Christian fundamentalism is either unwilling, if you can keep this up for a while, it'll be helpful. Christian fundamentalism is either unwilling or unable to tell the difference between those first two. What it says and the interpretation I have of it. Christian fundamentalism just goes, I'm just reading it. I, I believe it, and that settles it. With no acknowledgement that I interpret it, my interpretation could be wrong, and I'm curious to find out how. Maybe you experienced this at a family gathering or something where someone's like, well, the Bible says this, and I believe the Bible. And you're like, well, I believe the Bible too. I just don't think that's what it means, you know? And you're just in this place. So that's Christian fundamentalism. On the other hand, there's Christian progressivism, which is actually very similar to Christian fundamentalism. It also has a problem with step two, interpretation, But instead of blurring steps one and two, like fundamentalism, progressivism sort of just sidesteps number two and says, well, there's so many interpretations. How can we be certain of any of them? So so long, long story short, fundamentalism is like, I read it, end of conversation. Progressivism says, I read it, conversation never ends. But when you watch Jesus using the Bible, Jesus doesn't have those problems. He's not a fundamentalist because he clearly demonstrates it takes honest, intelligent, humble study to read the Bible well. And he's not a progressive 
because he lands. He lands on an authoritative interpretation of Scripture, and he fully submits to it, mind, body, soul, and calls, calls all his followers to do the same. Okay, so, so how do we read the Bible like Jesus? I want to do that. I want to be humble and yet confident. Listen, you don't need a PhD or seminary degree. You don't need to learn the Hebrew, whatever, at all. Because for Jesus, the Bible is not something just for pros. It's not for the pros. It, but it is something we need to wrestle with constantly and read and reread humbly and discuss generation after generation. And, and look at the last 2,000 years of how the church has read. So our relationship with the Bible is one of humility and intelligence and skill and open mind and an eye to church history, covered in prayer, never private, in community. I don't mean never private like you can't read it privately, but the interpretation of any one text isn't going to be revealed just to one person. That's what I mean by private. Why do we say this? Because as Jesus followers, we have to come to the scriptures the way Jesus does. That's the big kind of deliverable for you today. Because ultimately, when we understand and interpret the Bible rightly through Jesus, the scriptures carry the very authority of the triune creator God for the church. This is a big deal. Big deal. How many of you are familiar with the story of Jesus tempted in the wilderness? He is tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days in the desert. And in that story, it's fascinating how Jesus looks at the Bible. We see his view of the Bible in that story. He goes in the wilderness and he meets Satan, the same bad guy from page three of the Bible, the serpent, right? Satan, the devil. And it's the same trick from the serpent, isn't it? He says, did God really say? You guys, that's Satan all the time. I, I just put all the time there because that's his best trick in the book. It's his oldest trick literally in the book. And, and, and it's been so effective. It's been so effective uh, that, that he even tried it on Jesus. And, and it was considered a temptation, the great temptation for Jesus. But where Adam failed, Jesus wins. And how does Jesus win? How did he win against Satan? By only quoting scripture. Quoting this thing. He only says back to Satan, it is written. Satan's like, did God really say? And Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written three times. And now I think every time Jesus says it is written, he shows us something different about the Bible. We're going to get into that on another week. So just suffice it to say today, Jesus wants us to look at him and see his commitment to this library of books and then follow him in that same commitment, submitting to the goodness of God, coming to us through biblical authority, trusting Jesus. Because for Jesus, the Bible is a story that ultimately leads to himself and it's trustworthy and it's authority. It's those three things. One of my favorite authors, Andrew Wilson, puts it so well. He's, you guys, this is so good. Uh, <laughs> it, it comes from his book, Unbreakable, which is like 63 pages. Highly recommend it. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him 
So if he talks and acts as if the Bible's trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So good. You guys, that's the point for today. Intro to the Bible teaching series. Uh, Relearning to read and trust the Bible. We trust them ultimately because we follow Jesus in that trust. So how do we think about the Bible? We should think that the authority of Jesus comes to us through it. We trust that the authority of Jesus comes to us through these documents. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's our teacher. And he exercised and, and mediates his authority to us. It comes to us through, somehow, somehow through the Bible. And we shouldn't have a problem with that at the end of the day as we follow him. Why not? Why shouldn't we have a problem with this idea of authority coming to us from God? Because we do have problems with it, but we shouldn't. Uh, even though it's very normal to have problems with authority. Why shouldn't we have problems with God's authority? Because you guys, think about it. Authority is everywhere. It's all around you. Like in our society, authority is mediated all the time through writing, through journalism, through whatever, and you, you take it to believe it, you trust it, right? When you get an email from your boss at work, you have a choice, obey or not obey, right? That, why? Because your boss's authority is being mediated through his writing to you or her writing to you. Now, here's the hard part. Here's the hard part. I admit this is tough. Most of the Bible is not as straightforward as an email from your boss. Am I right? Most of the Bible is narrative. It's like, a, again, it's a story. And so we finish with two questions and one beautiful truth. And these are designed to make you feel hungry and open, open-ended, like, oh, I want to know more. Number one, How can a story be authoritative? If the Bible's a story and it's the ultimate authority, God brings his authority through the story, how is that authoritative over my way of life? Like I read a story, I'm like, how do I obey a story? (laughs) Great question. Here's another one. Is the narrative of the Old Testament as authoritative today, after Jesus, as it was for the Jewish people before Jesus? Is it? Super good question too. The early church wrestled with that question. You see the New Testament dealing with that question a ton. And we're gonna see it over the next few months as we journey together through God breathed this series. Which brings us back to the beginning, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, hey, don't think for a second that I've come to destroy this library. The law and the prophets. I actually fulfill them. And I bring them to you to listen and obey and find me in it all your life long in community. Jesus says it another way in John's gospel. Speaking of the Pharisees, who were the Bible nerds of the day, they leaned Christian, they leaned Jewish fundamentalist kind of in that day. Um, Jesus said this to them: You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Hear that? You study diligently. That's a really good thing, guys. We study. That's what Park Hill tries to do. We have long teachings that go deep. We try. 
And, and we want to study the scriptures diligently, but, but look how they did it. They thought the, in the Bible you'll find salvation in the pages. But he's like, no, it's in me. The pages point to this person. And if you refuse to come to the person, you miss out on the whole point. All of this, this whole book, this library of books, the scriptures, it all points to Jesus. So we would see Jesus rightly and encounter him, you guys. Even if you're here with a problem with the Bible, genuine hurt from past church stuff or whatever, like that is okay. That is absolutely bring that here. Just know primarily the point is to meet with God. God wants to meet with you. And that's what this Bible is doing. It's to point to the life, death, resurrection of this God revealed in Jesus. And so the way I see it, as the way our church kind of operates, there's two problems I think we can come into. And they're errors. I want to avoid us, help us avoid this, because I I can fall into both of these, actually. Um, Two errors to humbly avoid. Number one is to overvalue our own intellect. As we study the Bible, we're going to learn about the genres and the, a little bit about the languages and bad readings and good how not to read this part and how to, and, we, and we, the temptation is to be like, oh, we're smart. As we read this library of uh, intelligent biblical study is essential to spiritual growth. However, as we hone our interpretations of Scripture week after week, we might become arrogant in our knowledge and puffed up with pride to the point we become cold-hearted Bible nerds. Okay, no, that's Pharisee stuff. God, deliver us from becoming cold-hearted Bible nerds, right? Jesus is the center of the scriptures. And then the second error to avoid is to, it's similar, it's to overvalue our own doubts. You guys, this is just the negative way of overvaluing our own intellect. They're both the same problem. Critical questions and honest doubt is essential to spiritual growth. However, as we seek to heal from past church hurt and correct poor teaching, we might be tempted to stop reading or honestly engaging with the scriptures altogether. You guys, both of, these, both of those scenarios would be missing out on a relationship with God, a vibrant, loving partnership with the God who comes to you in Jesus and then says, meet me in the text because the text is pointing to me. And both of those don't follow the pointer toward the person. Jesus taught the scriptures are enough. It was the very thing that satisfied him when his stomach was empty in the desert and his flesh was weak. Through the scripture, Jesus heard God speak to him. And he wants you to follow him, to hear God in the text too. That's why we are doing bread, not just for information, but for communion and union with God through the text. This is the life we're called into. You guys, I'd hate for any of us to miss out on a relationship with God because of some apparent problem uh, that definitely might be hanging. It might be a problem that's just hanging for you, or there might be good answers. But as long as we realize the whole point is the person, or maybe you had some bad teaching, maybe you got some bad church teaching from eight, eight years ago that just left you so wounded. I'd hate for you to miss out on a relationship with God because of that. Because ultimately, the Bible does not say, look at me, Bible. I'm the Bible, look at me. It says, look through me to see Jesus. 
And so this is our prayer for the series and for our whole life as a church. And we're going to come to the table now to touch and taste and sense the person, the presence of Jesus through this physical act of eating and drinking together as a family. So can we all stand? We're going to pray. Jesus, thank you. You came clearly as a human. God became human, lived the life we couldn't live, and died the death that we deserved, and then rose to bring us all into new creation if we trust you. And part of trusting you means receiving these books from you and following you into these books. So for the coming years as a church, Lord, breathe your Holy Spirit out on us. Right now, breathe your Spirit out on us. Show us where we're hesitant or hurt and give us confidence and healing. If we're wrong, show us. Help us to be curious to know where we're wrong. Intellectually, morally, because you're right. Jesus, you're right. We want your life. So come, breathe your life into us, we pray. Church, we're going to sing before we come to the table. We're going to sing. And during this song, I'd love to invite you, any of you, for prayer. If any of those things are, are current live issues for you, like I, I am hurt, I am confused about what's true, and I just want to meet with God. I want to reorient my life around Jesus. And I'm not even sure what that means. I just know I want to bring him my issues. <laughs> and you don't have to be specific on what your issues are. You can just come for prayer and receive a hand on your shoulder and receive the Holy Spirit, God's personal presence available to all who trust him. I can't think of a better way to start a series on the Bible than to shift from talking about the Bible to talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so let's invite him to come into us again and to heal and, and, and to correct even. So uh, come forward. Receive prayer. I'd like to invite all of you to do that. We could all use it. Uh, but there'll be pastors and community leaders and people that will pray for you up here on my right and left up front. They're coming forward now. And, and anybody, just find someone up front and get prayer. Let's sing. Let's sing.